The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Today we're going to be continuing our four-week series on the Lord's Prayer entitled, How to Pray Like Jesus. You may be wondering, um, why do I need someone to teach me how to pray? I've been doing it since I was a little kid, and uh, that might actually be the problem. Uh, sometimes we have very childlike prayers, and that's not always a good thing. I went online and found some children's prayers, and I'll just read a few of them to you. Um, so here's a couple. One child wrote, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. Dear God, could you send Mikey Jones to another summer camp this year? Dear God, I love Christmas and Easter. Could you please put another holiday in the middle? Because there's nothing good there right now. (laughs) Dear God, I want to grow up to be just like my daddy, just not as hairy. (laughs) You know, we look at children's prayers, and they're very sweet, very innocent. Um, And we laugh at these prayers, but our prayers are prone to be a lot like children's prayers. It's very centered on ourselves, very self centered prayers, primarily praying for our needs and for our desires. We go to prayer when it's an emergency. We are in desperate need for God to help us out. We pray things like, dear God, please help me get this job. Dear God, please help me get this girl. Dear God, please help me get out of trouble. Or dear God, please just remove this person from my life. And none of those are bad prayer requests, but none of them are the primary purpose of prayer, and they are self-centered prayers in and of themselves. Today, Jesus is going to lay out for us a pattern of prayer to show us how we might pray rightly to our Heavenly Father. The Westminster Confession, I think, lays it out very clearly and very well when it says, the whole Word of God is of use to direct us in the duty of prayer, but special rule of direction for this duty and privilege of prayer comes from our Savior Christ who taught his disciples in what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. God has graciously furnished us with the foundations, with the basics of what is to be a part of our prayer life with him. If you would please open up to Matthew chapter 6. It is on page 811 in the Red Bible. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page 1158, Matthew 6. The Lord's Prayer consists of three main parts. There is a preface, our Father in heaven. There are six petitions. We're going to look at the first three petitions today. And then there is a conclusion or the doxology, which we, talked, which we recited earlier uh, in the service. And so let's again look at the Lord's Prayer. And we will be focusing on specifically verses 9 through 10, but we will read verses 6 through 13. So if you would, please read along with me. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. God, we come this morning to worship you, to glorify you, to give you the praise you deserve, to exalt your name in this room, in our hearts, and we go here to do it in this city. We pray, God, that you would help us relearn how to pray. Pray in a way that both glorifies you and gives us great joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're just going to, phrase by phrase, walk through verse 9 and 10 today and relearn how to pray. So it starts like this. Jesus says, pray like this. Now, many of you can probably recite the Lord's Prayer from memory. Maybe it's different versions, but you have heard it, you have memorized it, but you probably don't understand it, at least not fully and completely. And so it's not wrong to memorize the Lord's Prayer. That's actually one of the things we're hoping that you do. That's why we recited it before the break. That's why your kids are reciting it in their children's church room. We hope that you would memorize the Lord's Prayer because it is a guide for us in our own prayer lives. But there is a danger in memorizing it. The first danger is that we would, that we would violate what Jesus says in verse 7 when he says uh, that we should not heap up empty phrases. If we were just reciting this memorized prayer and we don't understand it and it means nothing to our hearts and that's exactly what we're doing. We're just heaping up empty phrases. And so one danger is that just by memorizing it and not understanding it, we're heaping up empty phrases. The other danger is that Jesus' primary intent for the Lord's Prayer is not that you would recite it, but it's that it would be a template for your prayer life that it would teach you the fundamentals of prayer, the important things in prayer, the pattern of prayer, the priorities in prayer. Let me give you an example. So uh, I love sports. If you know me, you know that I love sports. And I teach my kids how to hit a baseball. And when I'm teaching them how to hit a baseball, I teach them the fundamentals. Lift up your right elbow, get it up in the air, look at the ball, watch it hit your bat, swing through, don't step in the bucket. I teach them the fundamentals of how to hit a baseball. But they shouldn't swing the same way every time, right? Because sometimes the ball is low. Sometimes the ball is high. Sometimes they want to hit it to right field. Sometimes they want to hit it to left field. But I teach them the fundamentals. These are the things that you do. Keep your elbow up. Watch the ball hit the bat. Swing through the ball. But every time they do it, it differs because of the situation, because of the pitch. When Jesus comes to us and he says, pray like this, Jesus does not say, pray this or pray these words. He's teaching us the fundamentals that we would incorporate the things that we learned last week and this week into our prayer life, which our prayers change as we experience different things, as God puts different things on our heart. And so these are the fundamentals of prayer, the priorities of prayer that Jesus is teaching us today. And so it goes on with the preface. Jesus starts, our father in heaven. Now this short phrase is pregnant with meaning. And so I want to break it up a little bit. Jesus first starts with the word are. You know, in today's Christianity, I just talked to a person before a service where someone wants to have this solo Christianity, this cowboy Christianity where where they're not connected to anyone else unless they need help and then they'll connect and ask for money or for help or whatever it is. But they don't want to have a connection with God's body, with God's church, with God's people. 
And here Jesus reminds us the importance of being in community. You know, earlier he said, you know, it's okay to pray alone, to go into your closet and pray. But we also pray in the midst of community. We pray with and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he starts with our, and then he goes, our Father. When we come to God in prayer, we need to be reminded of why we come to God in prayer. You know, I know we can take prayer for granted because it's free, because it doesn't cost us much. But why can we come to God in prayer? Have you ever asked yourself, why can I, a sinful, finite human being, go to the God of the universe in prayer? What would make him listen to me? I am just one of billions of people. Why would he listen to me? Well, we are reminded here that the reason why God listens to you is not because you are interesting, not because you are extra good, but because of God's covenant love for you, that you are his child and that he is your father. John 1, 12 talks about this. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of men, but of God. If you believe in Christ, if you have been born again, you have been born of God. You are a child of God. You have been adopted by the God of the universe, and you can cry out to him, Abba, Father. And so we come to God because of his covenant, loving, everlasting, non-breaking relationship with us in which he says, you are my child. I am your father. I love you. I care for you. I delight in you. And I want to hear from you. I want to hear your needs. I want to hear what's going on in your life. I want intimacy. And so we start our father, but it continues. Our father in heaven. This gives us a balance to our understanding of God, doesn't it? We look at God as Father. We think of him as gentle, meek, lowly, mild. But he is in heaven. He is all-powerful. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is awesome. He is unchangeable, righteous, just God of the universe. If our Father fills us with confidence to go to him in prayer, knowing that he will listen, when we pray our Father in heaven, it should fill us with awe and with humility, that the God of the universe would listen to us, that he would be attentive to us as we go to him, as we speak to him in prayer. To a lesser degree, I'm guessing this is similar to what Malia and Sasha Obama feel. Malia and Sasha are the daughters of Barack Obama. And you have Barack Obama who is considered by some, the leader of the free world, right? The most powerful man in the world. He has millions of people under his submission, whether it be in the armed forces or either just as citizens. The decisions he makes affects millions of people. All day long, people call out to him, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President. But when Malia and Sasha come to him, they call him daddy. He is a man of great power, and yet he is their dad. This is the relationship with our father to even a greater extreme. He is far more powerful, far more infinite, far more holy than any man on this earth, and yet he is your daddy. He is your father who loves you and cares for you. And so we can go to God both with boldness, but also in humility 
remembering who we are to him and who he is to us. So it starts, our Father in heaven, hallow be your name. Let's start by clarifying two words here. First, hollow. When we say hollow be your name, we're not talking about hollowing out a log, okay? So it means something different than that. What does it mean? Well, to hollow means to acknowledge holiness, to consecrate or to sanctify, to set it apart. It means to give something a supreme place in your life, to place it above every other thing. This term is actually used three times in the book of uh, Matthew, and it's used uh, two other times in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, 17, Jesus says this, For which is greater, that gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred or hollow? Okay? Matthew 23, 19, just two verses later, You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So in other words, what we see is there are these objects that are hollow, that are set apart for very noble uses. And there are the instruments which make them holy, being the temple and the altar. When we come to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and we pray, hallowed be your name. When we hallow God's name, it isn't that we are making him holy. He is already holy. He is God. But we are acknowledging his holiness. And as we acknowledge his holiness in his In our prayer, we try to acknowledge his holiness in our life. We are called to be instruments of God, instruments to acknowledge his holiness, his greatness, his majesty. He uses all of creation to declare his glory. And so we say, hollow be your name. Now the word name had much more significance, much more weight to it in biblical times. Name wasn't just a label, but it was actually a description of a person's whole identity. And so we pray, hallowed be your name. We're actually praying that God himself would be exalted, that he would be glorified in this earth above everything else, that he would be revered, that he would be cherished. So we pray, hallowed be thy name. Now, this is hard for us because many times, We profane his name. People profane his name. They use it for ordinary purposes or they even use it for cuss words, right? They'll say, OMG, oh my God. Or they'll say, Jesus Christ. You know, I I hear Jesus Christ more on the basketball court than I do in church, to be honest with you. I mean, this this is how we use his name. It's it's just silly to me that people don't go, oh, Buddha. You know, Jesus Christ. That's how they cuss. I don't understand it, but... And so we profane his name. We don't hollow it. We take it for granted. We use it lightly. Or maybe, maybe the obstacle to hollowing his name is that we try to hollow our own name. Back in Genesis 11, shortly after the fall, we read that in Babel, they get together and they say this, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And God was displeased, and he smashed the Tower of Babel, confusing the languages and sending them out. If we're honest, many of our efforts, many of our desires, most of our thoughts are captivated by making our name great, by winning the approval of others, by showing ourselves to be worthy of their friendship. And yet God reminds us here that we are to make his name great. 
We pray, hallowed be thy name. You know, everything in life is for this purpose, to hallow God's name, to exalt God's name, to glorify God. Matter of fact, the rest of the Lord's prayer is all focused on this one petition. That's why we're spending so much time on it, that we would hallow God's name, that we would glorify God's name. This is the primary prayer of our hearts, or it should be, but this is the primary purpose of our life. You know, if, if I asked you, hey, why did God save you? If I said, why does God care for you? Why does he comfort you? Why does he love you? Why is he patient with you? We would be prone to answer that the reason why God loves us is because he loves us. God is patient with us because he loves us. And that is absolutely true. But there is a motivation deeper than God's love. And the motivation deeper than God's love is to make his name Great. This is recorded throughout scripture. I'll just read you a few verses in which we see God saying that he is doing all things to exalt his name. 1 Samuel 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Psalm 23, 3, David writes, God restore my soul. God restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Psalm 79, 9, help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins. Why? For your name's sake. Isaiah 48, 9, God says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. And then 1 John 2, 12, John writes, I am writing to you, little children, Because your sins are forgiven. Why? For his name's sake. Do you start to get the picture? It's not about you. It's about God. His grace and mercy and love to you is because he loves you, but is primarily to exalt the name that is above every name, to exalt God's name, that we would worship him and glorify him. And so the first petition is our Father in heaven, hallow be your name. The second petition of the Lord's Prayer is your kingdom come. By this we acknowledge that God's kingdom has not fully come, that there is another kingdom at work in this world, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of sin, in which the world is devastated. It's a kingdom that breaks things, that makes things miserable. And so we pray to God, your kingdom come. May you reverse the effects of the fall and bring the glorious kingdom of your redemption. You know, one of my favorite songs around Christmas time is the song, Joy to the World. And Joy to the World is celebrating joyfully that the king has come, that the king has come to bring the kingdom of his redemption to a broken and fallen world. Let me just cherry pick a few verses from there. It says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. No more let sin and sorrow grow. No thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace. Right now we are in an era, a time that theologians call the already and not yet. Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom of redemption has begun at Christ's first coming. 
You can see this as he's reversing the effects of the fall. He comes and he starts healing the lame, the blind, the paralytic. He heals the brokenhearted. He reconciles sinners with God. And this is the kingdom that God is bringing. And so we pray, God, let your kingdom come. We want death to end. We want sickness to end. We want broken relationships to end. And when you pray for these things, what you are praying for is that God's kingdom of redemption would come in power. And so we pray for his kingdom to come, but his kingdom will come in full when he returns. That's when it will be completed. You know, there are four chapters in the Bible where sin is not messing everything up, where God's kingdom is complete and final. And it's in the first two chapters and in the last two chapters of the Bible. That's when you see a full picture of what God's kingdom is, the things that our hearts long for. And when you look at the first two chapters prior to sin, prior to the fall, what do we see? We see creation. We see marriage. We see work. We see paradise. We see glory. We see intimacy, holiness, selflessness, sinlessness. And then there's the fall. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And what do we see? Blame shifting, hiding, murder, adultery, sorrow, pain, death. And that lasts for, I don't know how many chapters there are in the Bible, all but four chapters. And then we get to the second and last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And it starts like this. You can follow up on the screen. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And so this is the coming of the new kingdom, full and complete, not in part, but in full. And he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We pray for the kingdom to come because we want to see the effects of the fall eradicated. We want to see people employed. We want to see death eliminated. We want to, we, you know, my son yesterday got stung by a bee and was crying. And I thought, let your kingdom come. No more bee stings, right? Mosquitoes. I don't know what their place will have in heaven, but, you know, no more mosquito bites. No more sickness. No more marital strife. No more relational strife with family. And so we pray, God, your kingdom come. I love the way the children's storybook Bible puts it. It describes the kingdom as a place where God makes all the sad things come untrue. And that's what we pray, that God's kingdom would come. Petition three. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has a very unique perspective. None of us have been to heaven but Jesus has. Jesus has experienced heaven, the glory of heaven. He has seen what a holy and happy place it is. 
He saw the obedience of the angels who obey with humility and cheerfulness and faithfulness and joy and sincerity. And so Jesus experienced the glory of heaven, but he also experienced the devastation of earth. And I can't imagine how agonizing it was for Christ to compare the obedience of heaven with the disobedience of earth, with the happiness of heaven and the sorrow that was found on this earth. And so Jesus tells us to pray that we would become more like heaven, that we become more like his kingdom, a place where obedience to God reigns joyfully, gloriously, happily. Now you may ask, how can I know God's will for my life? It's actually very simple. He wrote it down. (laughs) He put it in the Bible. We know God's will for our life, his revealed will by reading his word. And this is the will that they're talking about. God does have a hidden will, a secret will that we know nothing about. We don't know who's going to win the Super Bowl. We don't know what God's going to do in different parts of the world. But God has a revealed will. And this is the will that he wants us to know. So many times we're captivated with God's mysterious will. But God says, I have revealed my will to you that you would obey it, that you would follow it for my glory and for your joy. Many times we think our prayer is something that brings God into line with our will. But what Jesus is teaching us is that prayer is to bring us into line with God's will. You know, this past Wednesday night, I went to the Brown County Fair and we went to the demolition derby in which cars are just like smashing into each other. And it's fun for some reason. I'm not sure why, but it's awesome because cars are falling apart and, you know, flames are shooting up and fluids are shooting everywhere. It's like, this is awesome. But around this little field where, where the cars are smashing into each other, they have, they have these uh, concrete, uh, I don't know, walls, I guess you'd say, all around it. And you see these cars smashing into the wall over and over and over again. And never does a car change the trajectory of that cement wall. It doesn't move it. It doesn't break. What happens is the wall changes the shape of that car. When we come to God in prayer, he is infinite, eternal. He is unchangeable. And so we come to God, and it is good to present our requests to God. But why we come to God is not to try to conform his will to ours, but try to conform our will to his. And so we go to God in prayer and say, Lord, let your will be done on heaven, on earth as in heaven. Let me end with this story. For centuries, people believed that the sun revolved around the earth, right? They had proof of it, so they thought. The sun was smaller than the earth, and it raised in the east and set in the west. And so logic would say the sun revolves around the earth. Well, on his dying bed, Nicholas Copernicus suggested audaciously that the earth actually revolved around the sun. Decades later, Galileo Galilee adopted Copernicus' theory that the sun was the center of the solar system and that the earth circulated around it. And Galileo was persecuted for it. He was actually put in pr- under house arrest for the rest of his life for believing the fact that the earth went around the sun. And you look at this and you wonder, why did people get so upset? Why were they so mad when when Galileo and Copernicus thought that the earth was not the center of the universe? Well, you fast forward a few centuries 
And there's another man of history named John Piaget. And he was a Swiss uh, developmental psychologist and philosopher. And he studied children. And he made this statement, which is, I think, absolutely revealing. He said, each child must experience his or her own Copernican revolution. They must experience their own Copernican revolution. They must learn that they are not the center of their world. You know, I don't think children are the only ones that need to have a Copernican revolution. I think daily I need to have a Copernican revolution to remind myself that I am not the center of the universe, but that God is the center of the universe. If there's one thing you take away from this message today, here's what I want you to take away. That God is the center of the world. That God is the center of your life and that God should be the priority in your prayer life. We said that Jesus is setting out for us a pattern, fundamentals of what it means to pray. And what Jesus tells us in the first three petitions is that it's not primarily about us. It is primarily about God. And that's why he prays, Lord, let your name be exalted. Let your kingdom be spread. Let your will be done. And all other prayers, we will next week see the prayers we pray for ourselves. But all of those are in subordination and support of the first three, that God would be exalted on this earth. Let me end with a quote by Andrew Murray. He says this, While we ordinarily first bring our needs to God in prayer and then think of what belongs to God and his interests, the master, Jesus, reverses this order. First, thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. And then, and we'll talk about this next week, give us, lead us, deliver us. The lesson is of more importance than we think. In true worship, the Father must be first, must be all. The sooner I learn to forget myself and the desire that he may be glorified, the richer will the blessing be that prayer will bring to myself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you love us, that you have entered into relationship with us. Hallowed be your name. May your name be exalted in our hearts, in our lives, in Green Bay, in this world. Your kingdom come, your kingdom of redemption. May may the sick be healed. May sinners be reconciled to you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, help us. We are weak individuals. We need your grace for obedience. Help us to do your will and not our own will. Lord God, may the Lord's Prayer not just be a recital of empty phrases, but may it be a pattern for our prayer and for our desires. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.